Amen. Yeah, today all over the world, followers of Jesus will gather to remember who he was and what his life was and is all about. And, and what his life was and is all about and what this church is about actually is this idea. That his life, his message, his central message called the gospel can change anyone, anything, anywhere. And there's no better place to see how the gospel works than here in this story that we're going to take a look at this morning, this narrative from the Old Testament about a man who lived centuries before Jesus, a man who shouldn't have ever come to meet the God of the Bible, a man who shouldn't have ever come to believe in the God of the Bible, but a man who did, in fact, come to meet and know God, and his name was Naaman. And we can see his story here in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1-15, through 15, and this is the passage on which the teaching is based. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. This man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leopard. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who's in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. And the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? to kill and make alive, that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now, and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. And it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says, Do you wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. That's God's word to us this morning. Let's ask now, how did this man that we just read about, a man named Naaman who who knew little about God, who cared nothing for God, come to not only seek God, but to find Him in the end? This is the least likely person, as I hope you'll see, least likely person to ever become a believer. How did it happen? How could it happen? Well, through the same three ways, I believe, this morning, that we can come to not only seek, but find God in the end. Through, first, a tragic flaw, second, a dramatic shift, and finally, an incredible cure. 
Let's begin here and look at number one at a tragic flaw and just begin by asking, well, who was this guy, Naaman? He was actually a remarkable person, if you're not familiar with him. Uh, the first verse, which is actually all one sentence in the Hebrew, tells us this. It says, Naaman was the captain of the king of Aram. He was a great man with his master, highly respected. The Lord had given him victory, also a valiant warrior. You see, Naaman was a man at the top of his culture, the top of his country. He was a warrior turned military commander, a national political, political leader, and an extraordinarily and fabulously wealthy man. He had a stable family life, a fair degree of personal character. He was also a pagan person and believed not only in the god of his nation, a god named Rimon, but being an Aramean would have also been a polytheist, meaning he had lots of beliefs in all kinds of gods and sort of believed in whatever god and belief system would have worked for him or for you. He is, can you see, therefore, a very modern, sort of American kind of character. Rich, educated, successful, and not prone to believing in the God of the Bible. And yet, in a shocking turn of events, he ends up in another nation, the nation of Israel of all places, looking for help. And if you understand a bit of the background, you understand that Israel would have been the last place a person like Naaman would have or should have gone for help. His nation was at war uh, with Israel. He would have been persona non grata, not welcome in the land at all. He would have looked down on the people he was fighting, on the Israelites. And not only that, he would have looked down on the God of Israel because his nation was winning the battle between them, he would have seen that as evidence and proof that the nation, the God of the nation of Israel was weak, insufficient, and conquered by his God. See, the point is, this is shocking and unforeseen that he would come here. It's as shocking as if Oprah Winfrey or Brad Pitt, perhaps, or Lady Gaga, of all people, were to sneak in here and listen on a Sunday. See, those things just don't happen, at least in our minds. Those kind of people... Don't come to a place like this looking for help. And a person like Naaman would never go to a place like Israel looking for help. And yet he did. Why? Well, the opening line tells us this. It says, Naaman had everything, but, but he had leprosy. But he had leprosy. And what that tells us is this, therefore. It doesn't matter how great you think your life is. It doesn't matter how great you think you can make your life. Something always can and often will pop up and ruin it. Some of you today are unbelievably beautiful. Check that. Actually, all of you today, being the day it is, are unbelievably beautiful. You're welcome. All right. Some of you are fabulously successful, enormously wealthy, to the point where the rest of the room just wants to have and be what you have and what you are. But it doesn't matter today if you're the person in here with everything, or you're the person in here who just wants everything. At some point, what the ancient Greeks called a tragic flaw always can and often will ruin your life. That was the Greeks' way, the tragic flaw was, the the ancient Greeks' way of acknowledging what the world was like in their view, that underneath the skin and the life of even the best person in the best culture and nation, a hidden darkness could come up and ruin it all. At the worst moment, and of course, philosophers, poets, writers have acknowledged the same thing, for years now. And for example, uh, consider the works of one William Shakespeare. Shakespeare, yeah. Take on one hand, uh, much ado about nothing, right? Maybe you've, you've read it, you've seen it. Uh, it's a comedy, right? There's laughter, uh, it's lighthearted, it's fun. On the other hand, take Macbeth. <laughs> Dark, grim, depressing. Which one, let me ask you, is more true to life? 
Which one's more like life? Is it much ado about nothing where everybody gets married in the last scene and lives happily ever after? <clears throat> or is life more like Macbeth, where everyone dies miserably in the last scene and we're left staring at the body count on the stage? Well, what's life more like? Is life more like, as much ado about nothing put it, more like a stage, right? Where the men and women are players putting on a grand design? Or is life more like Macbeth? A tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying or meaning nothing. Now, the Bible actually agrees with the Greeks, agrees with Macbeth up to a point that there's more tragedy than comedy in life, and even the best lives tend to break bad. Why is this? Well, it's because of the tragic flaw, and the tragic flaw can be internal. It can be a drive for money, a drive for achievement or for success, an unquenchable need for affirmation, attention, acknowledgement from others. It could be a dependence on drugs, alcohol, chasing after men or women or sex. It's a drive. It's you just can't say no to. Or the flaw could be external. By contrast, it could be something unlooked for. The death of a loved one, sickness of a child, loss of a job. Or in Naaman's case, a disease he never expected that cropped up into his designer label life and was ruining everything. So the Bible agrees with the ancient Greeks and with Shakespeare when it says that no matter who you are, you are vulnerable to life. But it disagrees with Macbeth when Macbeth says that life's just sound and fury, meaning nothing, because the Bible actually says that underneath all our sound and under all our fury and under all our mistakes and flaws and unforeseen disasters is actually a voice. There's a voice that calls to us, the same voice that calls to Nathan, called to Nathan, and here's what it whispers to us. It whispers to us, it pleads with us to give up the illusion of self-sufficiency. The illusion of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is an illusion that only the proud bear. Only the proud bear. The poor, the broken, the needy, they know they aren't really in control of their lives. Do you? Do you know that today? Because let's just be honest. You've never been in control of your life. You never have. You didn't choose where you were born. Didn't choose where you were born. Didn't choose your parents, your skin color. Unfortunately for me, I didn't get to choose my height, right? Uh, You didn't choose your athletic ability, your IQ. You won't choose when you die or if you get some disease or not. See, the most fundamental things about you and in your life, you have had and will have no control over. And the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that we all suffer are little pinpricks reminding us of that and reminding us of the Bible's core message, which is this. The core message of the Bible is not that humanity has what it takes to save itself. It's that it doesn't. It's that it doesn't. See, Naaman was great. He had everything, but, but, He had leprosy. And because of that, we can see now he was awake. Now Naaman is open to another answer, to getting help. And in that light, his leprosy, his tragic flaw, his outrageous fortune was a gift. It was a gift. Maybe it's the same for you today. See, Naaman's life never would have changed, and he never would have met God had he not gotten sick. You say, okay, Morgan, yeah, but, you know, I've known people who, who find God, yes, who, because of the trouble in their lives, they turn to him, but not everybody who goes through something, who, who suffers a betrayal or an illness or a tragedy, finds God. Some people just go on like before. You know what? You're right. They do. But Naaman didn't. Naaman did it. His life was changed, and he did meet God in the end. Why? Not just because of the flaw in his life, 
but also because of number two, because of the dramatic shift, that tragic flaw called and caused his heart to make. And let's look at that number two, second idea in the story. There's a dramatic shift that Naaman's heart made. What was it? Well, before we see what that was and where he ended up, we first have to see where Naaman began, when Naaman began to try to deal with his trouble. Where did he begin? Well, we see in the story that Naaman, in one of his raids into Israel, he had captured a little girl and taken her to be his slave. And when, she, when he gets sick, she suggests to him that he go see a prophet in Israel, a man named Elisha, who had been known to heal people. So again, here's the picture. Naaman's sick. His, uh, his illusion of self-sufficiency is gone. He's willing to go to Israel of all places to get help. So he goes and gets permission from his boss, his master, the king of Aram, to be able to go and leave the country. He he gets the permission, but then when he goes to Israel, where does he go? Not to the prophet, but where? He says he brought the letter to, the, to verse 6 says, to the king of Israel. Well, what's going on? The little girl suggested he go see the prophet, but yet Naaman goes to see the king. Why? Oh, the answer is because Naaman was attempting to solve his problems the way we all do, by going to the top and using our resources to try to fix the situation. Naaman is using here his power, right? His, his money, his, his connections. What does he take, right, to the king of Israel? A letter is a connection, right, from his own king, and he brings a whole lot of money to make his healing happen. Scholars believe it's likely in the millions of dollars Naaman's bringing here. But what does the king of Israel do? When Naaman asks him for a healing, he tears his robes. Can you picture it? And the king tearing his robes. Why? What does it mean? Well, it means the king of Israel knows he does not have what it takes to help Naaman. See, Naaman comes to the king because Naaman figured the God of Israel worked like all the other gods of all the other nations in his day. Other gods of other nations uh, were really just projections of the, the national identity, just means of extending the, the nation's importance. And so the, the prophets of other nations were, would... Just do what the king told them to do. The prophets of other religions were just on the king's payroll, can you see, to keep the people in line and keep them subjugated. Pagan prophets spoke what pagan kings told them to speak, or they didn't just lose their position, they lost their lives. So when Naaman is told to go to the prophet in Israel, but instead goes to the king, it's because he figures the prophet is just going to do whatever the king tells him to say. So the money's offered to who? Well, the king, the one at the top who can make things happen. But the king, it's amazing, he tears his robes. He's thinking, you've got to be kidding me, Naaman. <laughs> you've come to the one place in all the world where God is not a projection of a national identity. You've come to the one place in the world where the God is real and he's transcendent. The one place where God uh, ex- doesn't exist for the country, but the country exists for God. The one place where the culture doesn't judge God but God judges the culture. He's saying, you come to the one place where the prophet only says what God tells him to say, and not the king. So Naaman goes to the top, and he says, heal me. But the king tears his robes and says, am I God? I don't have what it takes to meet your need. Now, let's just pause here. 
and acknowledge that for the last roughly 150 years or so, our culture has believed and our universities have taught that religion, all religions, including Christianity, are just a projection of a culture and that it's a way of controlling people. And as a matter of fact, I had a conversation just recently with a skeptic friend of mine a few weeks ago, and this was his perspective to a T. All religions, all faith systems, including Christianity, are just projections of culture. Christianity is just a projection of Western culture designed to keep people enslaved and dumb and stupid and so i said all right listen i'm not i understand that i'm not offended by that uh, i understand where you're coming from because i've heard that before but let me just ask you let's say you're right and there is no god let's say christianity is just a projection of western culture even though it started you know on the other side of the world if that's true how do we fix anything How do we fix war? How do we fix poverty, racism? If you're right and there's no God at all, all we've got left are the people at the top. That's all we've got left. Years ago, Christian writer and theologian Rebecca Pippert was taking, actually auditing a counseling psychology course at Harvard University, and the professor gave the class a case study of a man who had a terrible relationship uh, with his mother growing up. He was full of anger and bitterness, and the anger was ruining his life. And in the book called Hope Has Its Reasons, Pippert points out her experience in the class and points out that the professor's diagnosis and insight into the man's case was brilliant. Yeah, it was spot on, man. It was, it was right there. But at the end of the professor's diagnosis she raised her hand and said you know thank you for that that's amazing but but how do you help him actually forgive how do you help him forgive and she asked what if the man asked his therapist to help him forgive his mother so his anger didn't ruin his life professor looked at her and said i think the counselor should say lots of luck (laughs) And, of course, the class got a little bit uh, angry with the professor and said, well, aren't we here, you know, to help the man? If his bitterness is killing him, aren't we here to help him forgive? And the professor pushed back and said, what are you talking about? This is psychology. Uh, This is science. Forgiveness, well, that's about right and wrong. And who's to say what's right and wrong? Psychology is about science, not about values and right and wrong. When When you talk about forgiveness, man, you're getting into the area of faith. And finally, he said... If you're looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. What was he saying? He's saying, am I God? (laughs) Am I God? Can I really heal a life? Science can't heal a heart. Now listen, don't you wish more people at the top would acknowledge that? Don't you wish they'd say that? Yeah, I do. And see, that's, this is where Naaman began. He, he began to try to solve his problems by going to the top, and he found out that the top couldn't help him. And so his life and story appeared to be at a dead end. But this is where the story turns. The prophet Elisha hears about what's going on. Here's there's an important, high-ranking, rival military official from another nation meeting with the king. And he says, have the man come before me. Have him come before me. And he'll know something. And what was it Elijah said he would know? He said, no, not that our nation is more powerful than his nation. Not even that there was a miracle worker, sort of like Miracle Max from the Princess Bride. You know, maybe you've seen the movie, sort of like Naaman, you know, have fun storming the castle, Naaman. No, nothing like that. He says, Naaman is going to know that there's a real God, a true God, a healing God, a rescuing God that true prophets point to. This God, Naaman's about to find out, is above all nations and all people, and he's the only one who can save. And can you see, Elisha isn't just about the man getting his healing, although he would get it. 
Elisha is seeking the man's salvation. He's looking for a change of life and a change of faith. And the beautiful thing in the story is it happened. It happened. Look at what Naaman says at the very end after he's healed. This is what Naaman's response is. He says, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. He doesn't just say, not that, you know, this God is, he's powerful, he can do stuff, he's sort of like a God up there, you know, wrestling around like he's a buddy with my God and my nation. No. He says there's no other God in all the world. Listen, for a pagan and polytheistic person to say this was dramatic. It's unheard of. See, Naaman hasn't just been healed. He's been converted. He's been saved. How? Oh, his heart shifted in two ways. And the two ways that our hearts, your heart, has to shift if you're going to encounter God. And these are those. First, he shifted from earning to learning. And second, from achieving to receiving. And what do I mean? Well, when Naaman, oh, when he shows up at Elisha's door, and it's really kind of comic here if you can picture it. Elisha, uh, he's the poor prophet living in this shack out in the country. And here in rolls Naaman, you know, in his Mercedes, you know, his big baller limousine with his posse and his entourage there with him to accompany him. And, and, and Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. He sends his little errand boy out to greet Naaman. And the errand boy is so unimportant. And this is the point he doesn't even get his name in the story and so the errand boy says listen uh you know my master the prophet elisha he's too busy eating breakfast to come out and meet you oh naaman great important man he can't be bothered right now but this is what he says go down and wash seven times in the dirty jordan river And Naaman does what we all would probably do ourselves. He walks away. He threatens to leave. But thankfully, his posse talks him down. His attendant said, listen, Naaman, come on, man. You showed up prepared to do some great thing, right? Some great deed. I mean, come on, Nathan, right? You're the man. Think about it. I mean, if the prophet would have told you to, you know, go pull the sword from the stone, right? Go get the broom of the wicked witch of the West, Pluck a flower from the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. You would have done it. So why, don't, why not do this? What is this showing us? Well, it's showing us that Naaman expected his blessing and healing to come the way we all think it should come, through our own actions, through our own good deeds, through our own merit, that we've proved that we're really good, so that God should now bless us and heal us. And this thought runs so deep, uh, even in Christian circles. I just spoke with a friend of mine, dear friend of mine, whose daughter is suffering, and she's almost died multiple times of a, of a mystery illness, and we're praying for her, but no doctor can cure this. And she asked me, listen, I was raised and taught to believe that if you confess the word and you rebuke the illness, and it didn't go, it was either because you were in sin or you had a lack of faith. And I've been fasting for weeks now to see if there's some sin in my life I don't know about uh, so that God will heal my daughter. Thankfully, she says, I'm beginning to doubt a bit of what I taught and believed. And see, what is, what is that belief structure? It's this, that God's blessing and healing only come when you've earned it, when you live a good life and you do everything right. What's that? It's another form of self-sufficiency. And therefore, Naaman is going to have to learn what we've all got to learn, that God is a healer, he is a rescuer, and he is a savior. But God saves, this God saves on his own terms, not yours. There is nothing we can do to force God's hand to put him in our debt. Mm -mm. He just heals because he loves. He just forgives because he loves. He just saves because he loves. And therefore, the washing in the river 
It's a way of humbling Nathan, Naaman, excuse me, that was for somebody out there, Naaman, shifting his soul from earning to learning. He had to learn that God responds not to the proud. God responds to the humble. So he went from earning his healing, thinking he had to earn his salvation, to learning the real God is obliged to no man. Listen, you think you've lived a good life, I mean, really, or that God helps those who helps themselves. Maybe you've quoted that like I used to, and it's there, it is. It's in the book of Hesitations all the way in the back. You think, you think God loves the good people? You've never read the rest of the Bible. You've never read the parable of the wedding feast where Jesus says, at the end of time, the good and the bad will come and eat with him forever. See, I've got a close relative who every time the subject of God and salvation comes up, he says, I could never believe in a God who would send a good person to hell. What's he saying? He's saying, first of all, that he's the judge, right? That he knows what's right and what's wrong. And second, that good things, a person who does good things, makes God do what that person wants, right? He's just made himself really big and God really small, But Naaman had to learn, and we did too, that we are small, that God is big, and that our real problem, Naaman's real problem, isn't just our sickness, although God comes to deal with that. No, it's that he had no relationship with God. His problem wasn't his sickness, it was his soul. What, therefore, did he need? Number three, finally, he needed this, an incredible cure. That's what he needed. And if you'll notice here in the story, Naaman doesn't just walk away. He walks away in a rage, right? He's infuriated, it says. He says, are you kidding me? I mean, anybody can do this. I've traveled all this way. I mean, I've gotten up. I've put on my best Easter clothes. I even wore a tie today to come to church. Anyone can do this. Anyone can wash in that river. I mean, a little kid can wash. A prostitute can wash. A coward can wash. Are you really saying, Elisha, are you really saying, Morgan, I'm no better than a prostitute or a thief or a coward before this God? What kind of a God has a bar of salvation so low that even a child and a criminal could get over it? But here's the thing. The reason you see over and over in the Bible that children, outcasts, thieves, prostitutes come to God's kingdom, they get blessed and healed, is because they have figured out what is just beginning to dawn on Naaman, that there is nothing to achieve. There's only something to receive. Only something to receive. Why is this? Is it because God's standards are so low? Oh, no, no. Quite the contrary. They are unbelievably high. They are beyond keeping. God, doesn't he say himself... I am holy, therefore you be holy. Be perfect as I am perfect. God says, I will punish the wrongdoer and by no means ever clear the guilty. See, his standards are beyond keeping. No one can keep them. That may upset you. It upsets me sometimes. I wish it weren't the case. But listen, if you could keep them all, you'd be God. You'd be God. But you can't, which of course means you're not. And what does that mean? That means that any help this God gives, any salvation, healing, blessing this God extends is by sheer grace, sheerly the heart and love and mercy of God. And that spiritually speaking, it means this. There's no difference, no difference between you or a child or a coward or a thief or a prostitute. Can you handle a God like that? Can you handle it? The only way God's love and touch, grace, can ever enter your life is sheer by receiving it. So the night I became a Christian, and I walk on that little chapel in the University of Houston campus in 1995, I quit trying to prove 
I was worthy of God's love. I simply prayed, Lord, I surrender. Make me new. And God did it. He changed me dramatically that night. Two weeks later, I came back and I was instantaneously and miraculously healed of back pain I'd had for years. And a doctor could diagnose or fix. Listen, did I deserve any of it? No. I had done nothing to deserve. In fact, I had only abused the heart of God toward me. But that's grace. I just opened my heart to God and received it. You said, that's too easy. But isn't that what Naaman was saying? Right? It's too easy. This can't be right. I mean, to get healed, saved, all the It's too easy to come to this God. It's got to be harder, more rigorous. There's got to be something hard I can do that I've got to do. But you know, actually, there is a hard thing you can do. I have to do in a sense. The hard thing to do is to admit that there is nothing you can do to come to this God. Nothing you can do for him. The hard thing to do is to admit your true spiritual condition that apart from God... You are poor, miserable, blind, and wretched. Happy Easter. (laughs) You and I deserve death and eternal separation from God. See, and in that sense, Christianity is both hard and easy at the same time. The only requirement is that you bring in nothing, which most people can't do. Most people choke on the free grace of God. They can't get it down. But Naaman does. He did. He found an incredible cure. What did he do? Oh, by going under the water, by going to the place he once scoffed at, once looked down at, once was skeptical of. Now he's showing that he knows this God and his word are above his life. He knows that there's no great deed he could do to earn it. Oh, he's been humbled. And he comes up out of the water, a changed man. And we'll see next week just how really changed he was. See, he shows, he knows, he knows. There's no great thing he could do to bring healing into his life, and he learned that from whom? Oh, from the prophet. That who? The little girl pointed him to. One day, at his lowest point, love called Naaman's name. One day, love saw his suffering and pointed him to the prophet, to the one place he could go to be freed and healed and whole. And today, this Easter Sunday, I'm pointing you not to Elisha the prophet, no, but to the one that all true prophets point to, to Jesus, who has done the ultimate great deed for us, to Jesus, whose perfect life was offered up on a bloody cross. This was the ultimate ordeal, the ultimate test, the ultimate quest, the ultimate trial. He did the ultimate great deed, didn't he? He passed every test, and what did he get for it? No, he didn't get rewarded. He was punished. He didn't get healed, did he? No, he got cursed. Did he get cleansed? No, he became the ultimate leper. Why? Because he obeyed the word of God. He became the ultimate outcast so that we could be washed and cleansed and healed. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me, make you whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious. Is it precious to you? Is the flow that can make you white as snow? No other fount. I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How do you apply this this morning, church? Two ways. Two ways. Our band's going to come, minister to us, play for us. Two ways you can apply this. Here's number one. Come back next week. <laughs> Don't you want to know what happened to Naaman after this, right? I mean, what happened to Elijah? What happened uh, to the little girl who set the whole thing in motion? This sermon's really a two-parter. You say, I see what you've done there. I see. 
All right. Listen, there's a stunning conclusion, a lot that's left to happen in the rest of this chapter, and you've you got to come back, hopefully. You, you won't be, I mean, I know many of you are out of town, but, uh, from out of town, but hopefully we won't be like many Americans who come to church and they get dressed and they say, man, that was exhausting to get that free coffee, man, and put on the clothes and drive in my car. No. Maybe like Naaman, you've come. See, Naaman, at first, he went away offended. First, he didn't believe. First, he couldn't get down the grace of God. Maybe that's you this morning. But he came back. See, he came back. He didn't go home. He came back. And he got the greatest thing that could have ever happened to him. His life was changed. What about yours? But second this morning, if you haven't already, make the shift. Make the shift. Put the trust of your life and heart in the perfect judge, perfect Savior, Jesus of Nazareth.